this on the last now. Come to this fountain so rich and sweet. Cast the poor soul at the Savior's feet. Plunge in today and be made complete. Glory to his name. Glory to his name. Glory to his name. There to my heart was the blood applied. Glory to his name. And he deserves all the glory. Amen. Pastor Main, stand for a word of prayer. Glad that you're here. Good to have those that are visiting tonight. Tommy, good to have you back. Others that are in the service, appreciate all of you being here. Been a good week in the Lord, and let's open our hearts to all the things God has tonight. Steve Fletcher, lead us in prayer, if you would, please. Yes. 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 <clears throat> yes, Lord. Amen. Let's keep on singing. Page 401, sitting at the feet of Jesus. Get your book now. Don't you sing the words? The words are really, really good. 401. Sitting at the feet of Jesus, oh, what words I hear him say, happy place so near, so precious, may it find me there each day.
the mind of Jesus. Make me holy as he is. May I prove I've been with Jesus, who is all my righteousness. Go back, let's do that chorus. On the first verse, and I understood a cappella. Sitting at the feet of Jesus, I would look upon the past, for his love has been so gracious. Has won my heart at last. Thank you. Maybe it's great. Great song. Let's let our ushers come forward to receive our offering. Everything you give tonight goes in the support of the Bible conference. So let me encourage everybody to give uh, something tonight and it will be used to the Lord. Look on your wrist if you're missing a bracelet. It was found in the aisle a moment ago and I'll leave it laying up here. And also, a key, uh, Curtis key, if it fits a safe deposit box. If I knew where it was, I'd go get into it. But, uh, there's a key here. If you lost it, I think this was found Sunday night. I'll leave this laying up here on the pulpit. Let's pray and you give tonight. The Lord will bless you for your giving. Father, bless the offering now. And I do pray, Lord, that you teach us to sit at the feet of the Lord Jesus each day of our life. May there not be a day go by that we don't spend some time at your feet. Bless now the service. Open our hearts now into all that you have for us. Bless the giving of the people of God tonight and the purpose for which it is given. In Jesus' name, amen.
between her and him. So she awoke in heaven's courtyard, free from pain within. The angels gathered round her and took her by the hand serenaded by angels up to the throne serenaded by angels finally home surrounded by praises to Now I close my eyes at night and try to picture that city of brilliant light that's waiting for me. But this old mind cannot conceive, so I'll continue to breathe till I'm transported there where I will be, serenaded by angels up to the throne, serenaded by angels, finally home, surrounded by praises to the King. Welcome to paradise, all the angels will sing, serenaded by angels up to the throne, serenaded by
And I believe that. Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Exodus chapter 25. The book of Exodus chapter 25. We're going to do things a little bit different uh, on Wednesday nights or in, our, in this particular studies. I gave you a sheet or you should have picked up a sheet as you came in. And uh, you'll see a little tabernacle on the front of it and on the inside. Uh, some blank spaces there. I learned a long time ago that uh, there's three things that if you do in your study, it'll help you to retain or to remember what you study. And that is, first of all, to read it. Second of all, to hear it. And thirdly, to write it. Now, if you do those three things with basically anything you read or you're studying, you'll remember it. Read it, hear it, and write it. And that's like when I study a verse of Scripture, I often just sit and talk to myself. I, not that I need the fellas in the white coats to pick me up, but I, I reason within myself and talk to myself and figure it out and talk out loud about it. In fact, that's the, what the word meditation means. The word meditation means to talk to yourself. And it just to really think about this and just talk and reason it out and figure it out and break it down, work your way through it and whatever like that. And uh, so we're trying, we try to do that here. Uh, you hear it as I speak to you. We put the screen in so you see it. And then I want you to begin on these Wednesday night services, we're calling them Bible classes. I want you to write it and you get in there. Because listen, if all that I am doing, if all we're doing is just coming and just hearing a little sermon going home and it don't ever get into us, it hadn't done anybody any good. And uh, so I want you to grow in grace and learn the Bible. Are you interested in learning the Bible? Say amen. amen. And so I want you to uh, just get you a pen out. I want you to follow. The things will be a little different on the screen. The blanks will be on the screen. We'll fill the words in at certain points. I want you to follow. I want you to stay up, pay attention. So one of the things I'm doing is getting some of you to wake up and pay attention to, in the service. Say amen. amen. In fact, I'm going to stand in the back door tonight as you go out. I'm going to check every one of your sheets as you go out, and I'm going to see if you've been paying attention. I think of this little uh, uh, note that John gave me tonight. It said, a Sunday school teacher asked the children just before she dismissed them for church services, why is it necessary to be quiet in church? And the Lanny replied, because people are sleeping. Well, church is not a place to sleep, and so I want you to pay attention. As I mentioned last week, uh, tonight we're going to begin a study of the tabernacle. We'll spend several weeks in our study of the tabernacle, and we're going to do a study of the tabernacle. That's why I'm going to call it a Bible class, our Wednesday night Bible class. I want you to come, bring your Bibles. I want you to let's get others to come and others to be here so that we can study the Word of God, show ourselves approved unto the Lord. But we're going to look at the tabernacle. On your bulletin there that you have of the uh, study tonight, the introduction, you have a picture of the tabernacle. I want you to hold that and look at it, and we'll be working our way through it tonight, and I'm going to give you like a thumbnail sketch of the tabernacle, and you'll be able to understand it. The only thing I would do different on the front of it is at the very bottom of that, I would write the word east at the very bottom. Right down here you see the brazen altar right at the very bottom, this bottom end, right east, because that end of the tabernacle is pointing east. On the right side there, which would be the north side, you see the veil, the table of showbread, that is the north side of the tabernacle. At the very top, you would write the west side, and then to the left is the south 
side. And you might jot that down. That would kind of give you an idea of how it was setting and the direction in which it was setting. And it was very important, uh, the direction in which it was erected. Everything about the tabernacle, every little detail was carried out by divine design, as we'll learn a little bit tonight. But even the direction it was in was very, very important. And the camping of the 12 tribes, and we'll say more about that. But uh, let's study the Bible together. Let's stand as we honor the reading of his word. Exodus chapter 25. Let's begin reading in verse 1. Exodus chapter 25. And tonight I'll give you an introduction to the tabernacle. And over the course of the next several weeks, we're going to look at every little piece that you see in that picture there and all of the things that are involved. It's going to be fascinating. Verse 1, the Bible said, The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, that they bring me an offering. Of every man that giveth it willingly with his heart, ye shall take my offering. You see, God's always in the business of taking offerings. Amen? That's why I like to take offerings. Verse 3, And this is the offering which ye shall take of them, gold and silver and brass, and blue and purple and scarlet, and fine linen and goat's hair, and ram's skins dyed red, and badger skins and shittim wool, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for sweet incense, onyx stones and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. Why? Let them make me a sanctuary, verse 8, that I may dwell among them. According to all that I show thee after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall ye make it. Verse 9, God tells him, verse 8, he said, I want you to build me a sanctuary. Verse 9, he calls that sanctuary a tabernacle, a tabernacle that is built after a pattern that God says that he would show or is showing to Moses. Thank you. you may be seated. Tonight, let's uh, look at the tabernacle. We began looking at the tabernacle and just give you an overview of the tabernacle so you understand a little bit more about it. Our Father, we thank you for the many wonderful object lessons that you give us in the Bible. And Lord, object lessons that you so design in such a way to illustrate divine truth we thank you, Lord, for this great object lesson that you gave the children of Israel thousands of years ago and for the 500 years that it stood as a witness to you and who you are. I pray tonight, Lord, as we gather here tonight and begin our journey and begin our study in this class, in this midweek service, that the Spirit of God would take our time and bless it. We want to learn your Word. We want to grow in the Word of God. As a preacher of the gospel, Lord, I want to know your word and to share your word. As a pastor, Lord, I want our folks to be Bible students and to grow in the knowledge of the word of God. So bless our time together. Bless both roles as a giver and as a listener. And I pray that we'll both grow as a result of what you will help us to see from the word of God. So bless now tonight and we'll thank you and praise you for it is in Jesus' name we pray. And for his sake we ask these things. Amen. When I think about the tabernacle, I think about something that Dr. M. R. DeHaan said in his little book on the tabernacle. He said, there is no portion of the scripture richer in meaning or more perfect in its teaching of the plan of redemption than this divinely designed 
building. And I would say amen to that. First, there is no portion of the Bible that is any more richer than the portion that has to do with the tabernacle. It is a fascinating study, and I trust it will be a fascinating study for you in the days to come. Second of all, he said there's nothing in the Bible that presents more perfect the teaching of redemption than the tabernacle, and he is absolutely right. As we will learn in the days and weeks to come, the tabernacle was a great object lesson. And every little detail of the tabernacle testified to God's redemptive work. Everything we'll see, every, every part of its design, every piece of material that was used and how it was laid out, all testified of Jesus Christ and his redemptive work for us on Calvary. It is interesting that as you study the Bible that there is more space devoted to the account of the tabernacle than any other subject in the Bible. There is more said about the tabernacle than the death of Jesus Christ. There is more said about the tabernacle than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is more said about the tabernacle than the second coming of Jesus Christ. There is more said about the tabernacle than any other subject in the Bible. In the book of Exodus alone, you'll find that the tabernacle is the subject of 14 chapters. In the book of Leviticus, you'll find the tabernacle is the subject of 18 chapters. In the book of Numbers, you'll find that the tabernacle is the subject of 13 chapters. Deuteronomy, there are two chapters in which the tabernacle is the subject of. And when you come to the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, you'll find there are four chapters in the book of Hebrews, giving us a total of 51 chapters in the Bible, that the subject of that chapter is the tabernacle and the offerings of that tabernacle. So you find it has a large place in the Bible. And if it has such a large place in the Bible, it would do as well to learn about it. For God gives so much time and gives so much attention to it in the Word of God. And there's reasons, as we shall see. In the book of Exodus, of which we're reading tonight, you'll find that the record of the tabernacle is found twice. You find beginning in chapter 24, going through chapter 31 of Exodus, that God is giving Moses instructions about the tabernacle. He's telling Moses what he wants built. He is telling Moses how he wants it built. He is giving Moses a pattern. He's giving Moses a diagram or a model or a blueprint of the tabernacle that he wants built. Beginning in chapter 35 through chapter 40, you find Moses building the tabernacle and following God's instruction down to the minute detail. Not one thing about the pattern God gave to Moses did he alter. Not one thing did he add. He builds the tabernacle just like God told him to build it, and he carries that out, and that is found in chapter 35 through 40. For 500 years, the tabernacle had a special place, a significant place, and a spiritual place in the history of the children of Israel. And it was only when Solomon built a temple, a more permanent structure, that the history of the tabernacle faded away. But for 500 years, this structure that we're looking at had a very significant place in the history of the children of Israel. Now, in your notes, I jotted down some names that you have of the tabernacle in the Bible. In Exodus 25, verse 9, it is called the tabernacle. The word tabernacle simply means a tent or a dwelling place. If you'll notice in the picture that I gave you on the front of your notes there, you have what looks like a fence that going around it. That is called the outer court. It is that structure on the west end there, that tent, 
that is really what is called the tabernacle. We refer to all of it, the outer court, everything else as the tabernacle. But really when you talk about the tabernacle, you're referring to that tent or that dwelling place that you have on the west end of the outer court. But again, tabernacle simply means a tent or dwelling place. Exodus chapter 25 and verse 8, we read a moment ago, it is called a sanctuary. Now the word sanctuary speaks of a holy place or that which has been set apart. When you talk about the tabernacle, you're talking about a holy place. When you talk about the tabernacle, you're talking about a structure that was set apart from any other structure. And what this structure was set apart for was for divine purposes. So it made it a holy place. It became a sanctuary. It was a tent, but it was a holy tent. It was a dwelling place on the earth, but it was a holy dwelling place. It was a place that was set apart for God to dwell, and we'll say more about that. You'll find in the book of Numbers 9 in verse 15 that it's called the tent of the testimony. You see, within the tabernacle in the holy place, or the most holy place, there were these items. There was the Ten Commandments, the tablets of, of stone that Moses, or God had given to Moses. There was Aaron's rod that budded. And there was also a pot of manna. Now all of these testified to the holiness of God and to the person of God. They testified to what God had been to his people down through the years. So it was called a tent of testimony. And these items and other things about it testified a certain truth about God. Number 17, verse 7, it is called the tabernacle of witness. You see, as we will notice in a moment ago, this was a place that God dwelt on the earth. And the tabernacle was not only a testimony of who God was, but it was also a witness to the children of Israel who he was, and not only a witness to the children of Israel, but a witness to all the nations around them. So what occurred at the tabernacle and everything that was happening there was a testimony and a witness to God and to the children of Israel and to the nations. Exodus 34 and verse 26, it is called the house of the Lord. Again, it was a place where God dwelt. Thus, it was the house of the Lord. 1 Kings 2, 28 is called the tabernacle of the Lord. That is, the dwelling place of the Lord or the tent of the Lord. Exodus 40 and verse 35, it is called the tent of the congregation. And the reason it was called the tent of the congregation was this was the place where the congregation would gather at the door. On the east end is what you have the door. On the east end of the tabernacle was the door of the congregation, the door of the tabernacle. And there's where the people would gather, and that's where they would worship. That's where they would bring their sacrifices to be offered. They did not enter into the outer court, but they brought their sacrifices to the tent door. And there's where they gathered on their feast days, on their days when they would offer the burnt offerings and the peace offerings and the meal offerings and so forth. They would gather together as a people. It was called the tent of congregation. So that's a few of the names that you have in the Bible of this building or this tent or structure that we're calling the tabernacle. Now there are three simple things I want to point out tonight that will give you a quick overview, a thumbnail sketch of the tabernacle. You began filling in the blanks and writing these things down. The first one that I want you to notice is the purpose of the tabernacle. The purpose of the tabernacle. Why the tabernacle? Why did God give Moses a pattern, or why did God tell Moses, this is what I want you to build? What was the reason, what was the purpose in the construction and the erection of the tabernacle? Well, you'll notice in Exodus 29, verses 42 through 45, we learn that the tabernacle had a three 
twofold purpose. Purpose number one was it was to serve as a witness of God's relationship with his people. The tabernacle was to be a witness of God's relationship with his people. You notice Exodus 29, notice verse 42. Exodus chapter 29, and notice verse 42. The Bible said, and this shall be a continual burnt offering. Exodus 29, 42. This shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord. Now notice this next statement, where I will meet you to speak there unto you. Now, you notice what he said there? God said this is the door, this is the tabernacle of the congregation. And he said, it is there that I'm going to meet you. And not only does he tell them I am going to meet you, but he also tells them that there he will talk to them or speak unto them. It was at the tabernacle that God met man. It was at the tabernacle that man met God. You see, the tabernacle witnesses that God and man can come together. And the tabernacle witnesses that God and man can have a relationship. Now, it's interesting in verse 42, he makes reference to the burnt offering. And the burnt offering is a type of Christ dying on Calvary for our sins. You see, the reason God can meet man and the reason man can meet God is because there has been an eternal burnt offering. Jesus Christ has been our sacrifice for sin. I want you to understand something tonight. Nobody's saved because of how they live. Nobody's saved because they do this or do that or they belong to this church or that church. You're saved because you put your faith in Jesus Christ and what he did for us on the cross. Now, if you're depending on anything else to say, well, I do this and I do that, I live this way, I live that way, I go here, I go there, I give 40% of my income to the Lord, I'll go to heaven. No, you go to heaven because what Jesus did for you and you've accepted him. That's the only way God and man can ever be reconciled. That's the only way God can ever meet man. It's the only way man can ever meet God, and that's through the blood of Jesus Christ. But here's the great thing. We can have a relationship with God. Here is the wonderful story of God's love that we that are sinners, God that is holy, there is a way and a place where we can have a relationship with God, and that's through Jesus Christ. So it witnesses of God's relationship with his people, but there's something else it witnesses to. It not only witnesses to the fact that we can, uh, of God's relationship with his people, but second of all, it witnesses to God's residence among his people. It is a witness to God's relationship with his people and a witness of God's residence among his people. Look at verse 45 of, of Exodus 29. And notice what he said. Verse 42, he said, there I will meet you. But in verse 45, he said, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and be their God. He not only says we can have a relationship, we can meet, but he also says, I'm going to live with you. I'm going to dwell among you. Now, when you look in the Bible, you'll find that there are three dwelling places of God that are made reference to in the Bible. One of them is right here, the tabernacle in the wilderness. Another dwelling place of God was in his son, Jesus Christ. And the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And John 1, 14 said, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
It's fascinating the word dwelt that is used there. It literally means the word uh, became flesh and tabernacled among us. You see, God, here's the wonderful thing about being saved. And that is that we are brought together through the work of Jesus Christ. God can come to man. Man can come to God through Jesus Christ. But when we come to Jesus Christ, God takes up residence in our lives. Now, when the Bible talks about 1 Corinthians 3, it talks about how we are the temple of the Holy Ghost. You could put the word tabernacle there. We are the tent. We are the tabernacle of the Holy Ghost. That is not pictorial language. I want you to understand something tonight. You've been born again. God lives in you. If you've been saved, God actually has taken up residence in your life. That's not just pretty language to make a shout. That's truth. God lives in you through the person of the Holy Spirit. He resides in the believer. That's why it's so important what you do with this house, this body. Will you recognize this tonight, that God lives in you? Then you realize that your body is no longer yours. It's become his dwelling place. It's his residence. It's his tabernacle. And you're in his indwelling in you, and you're to honor that indwelling there. But there's a witness of God's residence. Are you glad God lives in you tonight? Say amen. But it also witnesses not only to, as it stood as a witness of God's relationship with his people and God's residence among his people, but it was also a witness of God's revelation to his people. There was a way in which God wanted to say to the children of Israel, now this is who I am. This is the kind of God that I am. So many features about it. In fact, every feature. And we'll look at many of those. But through this building and the way that it was built and everything about it, God was saying to them, now this is who I am. This is the kind of God I am. This is what I expect. This is what I ask. This is what I call for. This is me. This is who I am. And he testified to many things, but I point out two of them. I don't have them on the screen, but you might write them down in the margin there. For one thing is a revelation of the holiness of God. Look at Exodus 25 and notice verse 8 again. We read it a moment ago where it's called a sanctuary. The tabernacle is called a sanctuary. I said the word sanctuary there is a word that speaks of that which is holy or that which is set apart. When the Bible speaks about be ye holy for I am holy, it's talking about being set apart to God just like Jesus Christ was set apart to God, dedicated totally unto him. And, but when he talked about God, his place being a sanctuary, it was meaning that this was a holy place. And what made it holy? What made the tabernacle holy was not because they maybe hung a sign out and said, this is holy. No, what made it holy was that was where God dwelt. And when God dwelt there, it becomes set apart from any other structure. It became distinct and unique from any other building. This was God's dwelling place. This was a holy place. 31 times in the book of Exodus alone you'll find the word holy attached to the sacrifice. It was a holy place. We'll say more as we learn about the tabernacle or the most holy place. And the high priest is would go behind that veil once a year. And there were certain procedures that he would follow that would typify cleansing in his life. And if he walked behind that veil where God dwelt, and if there was sin in his life, he died immediately. For sin cannot abide in the presence of God. It testified that God was a holy God. 
They not only witnessed to the holiness of God, but look at Exodus 29, 43. It witnessed to the glory of God. Exodus 29, verse 43. We read it a moment ago. Well, we read around it, but notice what he had to say about it. And he said in verse 43, And there I will meet with the children of Israel, and the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory. And the word glory there speaks of the splendor of the individual to whom it's associated. God said, my glory is going to fill the place. Who I am in all of my splendor and in all of my majesty, my glory will fill the place. You see, any of the children of Israel, when they looked upon that tent out there in the desert, it reminded them that their God was a holy God. But it also reminded them that their God was a glorious God, that he was a God in all of his splendor and all of his majesty. And they were constantly reminded that he was a God that deserved their reverence and a God that deserved their respect and a God that deserved their worship. I want to say unto you tonight, we serve a holy God and we serve a glorious God. And the more we learn about God, the more we ought to reverence God. And one of the problems in our generation is that we know very little about God. He's mentioned quite often, but we very, get, get, we very, very little do we get to know him, and our knowledge of him is so, so shallow. We understand very little about the kind of God that we serve. It's no wonder to some he's the big daddy in the sky and, and the man upstairs. But I want you to understand something tonight. He is not a big daddy in the sky, and he's not a man upstairs. He is a thrice holy God in all of his glory and in all of his splendor. A God to stand in all of, a God to reverence, and a God to worship. That was the purpose of the tabernacle. God put it right in the middle of a desert. So that it would illustrate and be in witness to the relationship that he had with his people. And how that he dwelled among them and had taken up residence with them and among them. And how through that structure he would testify of the kind of God the children of Israel had. It was the purpose of the tabernacle. But there's something else and let me move on. Are you still with me? The second of all. I not only think of the purpose of the tabernacle, but second of all, the pattern for the tabernacle. Look in chapter 25, verse 8 and 9 again. Chapter 25, verse 8 and 9. I know I'm having you turn your Bible back and forth quite a bit tonight, but and if I hear somebody sneeze, I know, you know it's because of all the dust that is gathered in the pages there. And say amen. Amen. The ones that didn't say amen are the ones that's trying to keep from sneezing. Can I get an amen right there? Let's move on up before I get in trouble. Verse 25, chapter 25, verse 8 and 9. We read it a moment ago. He said in verse 8, Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Now notice verse 9. According to all that I show thee after the pattern of the tabernacle. Now when Moses went up on Mount Sinai the first time, God gave him a pattern. He gave him the law. And in the giving of the law, he also gave him, we might say, blueprints for what we're talking about, the structure we're talking about tonight. He said, now I want you to go back. This is what I want you to build. He gave him a pattern. He said, I will show thee uh, the pattern, whatever. And the word pattern is simply a word that speaks of a model or a structure or a figure. We would say blueprints. God told Moses, now this is what I want built. This is how I want it built. 
17 times in Exodus chapter 39 and 40 where you find Moses building that. You read that Moses built the tabernacle according to the command of God. God gave him a pattern. God gave him a blueprint. And Moses went back and he built the tabernacle just like God told him to build it. Not one thing in the tabernacle, not one thing about the tabernacle was according to the imagination of Moses or according to any man's ideas. Not one human thing was added to it. Everything about the tabernacle was according to pattern. Everything about the tabernacle was according to design. It's how God wanted it built. And so again, he built the tabernacle according to the commandment of God. Now look at this tabernacle. We talk about the pattern and the blueprint or the structure, the layout of the thing. Let me point out three things about it. This will give you an idea of what it was like. This first one. I want you to think with me how the tabernacle was fashioned. How the tabernacle was fashioned. Or how it was laid out. Or how it was arranged. Now, the tabernacle, now, you've got a blank page on the back of your little bulletin. You can jot notes down there. But the tabernacle was laid out, really, in three compartments. In fact, you can turn the front page over and see the picture, and you follow me, and I think you'll understand it. But it was laid out in three compartments. The first one is what we would call the outer court. And the outer court was like a courtyard that was created by this fence-like structure that surrounded the tabernacle. You see it there. You see the poles and the cords that go down that tie it to the ground. That outer wall, that outer fence that created a courtyard, that was known as the outer court. Now, this wall, or curtain as it is called in the Bible, well, it was a curtain of fine linen that was suspended on 60 poles, or as the Bible calls them pillars. There's 60 of them, which surrounds the tabernacle. And these pillars were joined to one another by silver bands or connecting rods, making one frame, one solid frame that went around. Be like you put the poles, put the connecting rods, and so you started out with a frame going all the way around, and then, of course, you would hang the linen on it. They were connected, making one frame, and each one of them sat on a socket of brass. All of them were tied together with 120 cords and 120 brass pins. Now, the measurement, you see that courtyard or that fence or that linen curtain hanging there, it was 150 feet long. It was 75 feet wide. Again, it's 150 feet long. It was 75 feet wide, and it was seven and a half foot tall. Now, that was the measurements that God gave to it. The tabernacle or the outer court had only one entrance. Again, it's 150 foot long, it's 75 feet wide, and this curtain that surrounded and formed the uh, courtyard there, the outer court, was, a seven, was seven and a half foot high. There was only one entrance, and that is on the east side, right in the very middle. You see in your picture there, right in the middle, is a, is a, you can pick it up, get the idea of the, uh, the uh, entrance there. That's the only entrance into the tabernacle. And this entrance was 30 feet wide, Seven and a half foot tall. Now, what the children of Israel did is they camped around this. Whenever the tabernacle moved, 
they would move the tabernacle, break it down, and move it to the next location. And they didn't do this every day. They would usually move to a certain point and count when they would be there for weeks and months at a time. But whenever they would count, then the children of Israel would camp around it. It was right in the dead center of their camp. On the east side, they would have the, the tribes of Judah and Issachar and Zebulun would count. On the south side, the tribe of Gad and Simeon and Reuben would count. On the west side, the tribe of Benjamin, Manasseh, and Ephraim would count. On the north side, the tribe of Dan, Asher, and Naphtali would count. So all the tribes around this tabernacle, outer court, it was in the very center. That's the first compartment. We call it the outer court. The second compartment really is what we call the tabernacle. And the tabernacle, which is that tent on the west end you see there, is really one tent but divided into two compartments, given as our three compartments. It was divided by a veil that ran through it called the most holy place. The tabernacle consisted and was made of a framework of 48 boards that were overlaid with gold. 20 boards on each side. Six boards for the western side and two corner boards giving you a total of 48 boards overlaid with pure gold. And each one of these boards stood upright next to one another. And they were held together by five horizontal gold-plated bars that passed through golden loops that were attached to these bars. So when they would break the tabernacle down, they would break it down board by board by board. And when they put it back up, they would stand these boards up and run these bars through these loops that locked them all together. So you had these 48 boards standing high. Each one of these boards was 15 foot high and two and a quarter inches wide. These 48 boards stood in 96 sockets of silver. The tent, we said, the outside wall stood in sockets of brass. That represents something. But the tabernacle itself stood on sockets of silver, 48 of them, one on each corner of each board. At the entrance of the tabernacle, the tent here, you see in your picture there as you go from the east end through the gate, you see a brazen altar, then an outer court, then you go through the entrance. That is called the entrance or the door of the tabernacle. And that door was made of fine linen, and it was upheld by five pillars or five poles. And you see three of them, two of them hidden by the drape that falls over it there. The veil that divided the tabernacle on the inside, you go through that by the brazen laver, through that entrance there, and you go into that first place called the holy place, and you see the very next divider, that is what we call the veil. And that veil was upheld by four pillars. So it divided it. There was a veil. The entrance, then you go so far, there was a veil that divided it. Now, the covering of the tabernacle was basically three layers of covering. If you were to go on the inside of the tabernacle, and you would look up, and these coverings provided the ceiling and the roof of the tabernacle. If you walked on the inside of the tabernacle and looked up, you would see a beautiful piece of linen. Inside you saw a linen curtain that was embroidered with gold and purple and blue and scarlet with figures of cherubim, cherubims looking down upon all the activities in the tabernacle. That would be the ceiling of this tent. This framework would go up and they would drape this gar uh, fine linen curtain over it. On top of that 
particular lair was a covering made of goat's hair, as the Bible said, that was dyed red. And this fell over top of the ceiling, giving a second covering, and it overlapped the first covering a little bit, so that the blue or the beautiful garment was always seen by those on the inside, never seen by those on the outside. But it was a goat's hair garment or goat's hair covering dyed in red that draped over it. And then the final covering that went over it, which was really the roof, was a leather covering made of badger skins. Now, when the Bible talks about badger skins, it's not talking about a badger like we think of. A little bitty animal there. Take a lot of those, sew them together. But that's not what the Bible talks about, a badger. It's not talking about a mean woman either when it talks about a badger. When it talks about a badger or a mean husband, a grouchy husband, they both fit in that category, amen? But it talks about a badger. Most Bible scholars believe it has reference to some kind of antelope, something in the deer family. And what it was was merely the skin, not the fur, but the skin of it. And what you had was a dull gray, a dull drab gray looking leather covering on the outside. So from the outside, when you looked at the temple or the tabernacle, it was not a very attractive building. Just a wall linen curtain hanging around there. On one end was this tent there and its coverings over just an old animal skin stretched over the top. And, of course, that was to keep it dry on the inside and whatever like that. Now, this building on the end, or this tent, tent on the end, was 45 feet long, 15 feet wide, and 15 foot high. On the inside, it was divided into two compartments, but it was not divided down the middle. If you were to go by the brazen laver and go through the door of the tabernacle, the first room that you would come in would be the holy place. It was 30 foot long, 15 feet wide, and 15 foot high. But if you passed through the veil into the most holy place, you went into a room that was 15 by 15 by 15. It was a perfect cube. Now, the door that led into the tabernacle was 30 feet wide. It was 15 foot long or high. And the most holy place was a 15 by 15 by 15. The door was 15 foot wide and 15 foot high. And the veil was 15 foot wide and 15 foot high. That's how it was fashioned. Did you get all that? Did you write all that down? Good. Second of all, stay with me now. We're going to go in a moment. Are you still with me? That's how it was fashioned. Second of all, I want you to see how it was formed. How it was formed. That is, what was used in the tabernacle. It was fashioned, laid out, as we mentioned, in an outer court, 150 by 75, a tent on the west end that was 45 by 15 by 15, divided into two rooms, 30 by 15 by 15, and one room, 15 by 15 by 15. But it was formed from these materials. I want to look at all the references, but this gives you an idea of the kind of material they used in it. They used gold in it, pure gold. Silver, a lot of silver was used in it. Brass was used in it. Fine linen was used in it. Goat's hair, dyed red was used in it. Ram's skins, badger skins, deer skins, and shittim wool, which is also called acacia wood, which is a very, very hard wood. Those are the materials that were used in the building of the ark. That's how it was formed. But I want you to notice thirdly and quickly how the tabernacle was furnished. Not only how it was fashioned, laid out, how it was formed, materials that were used, but how it was furnished. Look at your picture here. And you see in the outer court, there were two things in the outer court. 
The first thing you see as you came in on the east end through the entrance was the brazen altar. This is where the sacrifices were offered unto God. You went to the past the brazen altar and you come to the brazen laver, to the laver cleansing, to the laver of washing. Those were the two things in the outer court. If you went into the holy place through the entrance of the door of the tabernacle, you would find these three items. You would find the golden candlesticks sitting to your left. You would find sitting to your right the table of showbread. And sitting in the very center next to the veil, you would have the altar of incense. If you went behind the veil, you would find two things. Really, they were put together. They looked like one, but they're really two things. If you went behind the veil, you would find the Ark of the Covenant, which was a chest or a box. And inside that box were the Ten Commandments and Aaron's rod that budded and a pot of manna. The second thing you would see would be the lid to that box that was called the mercy seat. A solid piece of gold that sat upon that chest or upon that ark. And there were two statues of these angels with their wings as they come across. Those were, those were the things that you would find in the most holy place. That's how the tabernacle was furnished. Now let me wrap it all up tonight by giving you a third and final thing. And that is not only the purpose of the tabernacle and the pattern for the tabernacle, but thirdly and lastly, the pictures in the tabernacle. And when I say the pictures in it, I don't mean they had a, a picture of D.L. Moody hanging on the wall or anything like that, but the symbolism of it, what it illustrated and what it said. See, everything about the tabernacle was symbolic of something. Everything about the tabernacle, every piece of material, everything about its layout, every little detail was symbolic of something. And it was symbolic of basically two things. The first one is this. The tabernacle was symbolic of the Christ. It was God's picture on earth of who Jesus Christ was. You see, before Jesus was ever born on this earth, God, from the very beginning, gave object lessons and he gave pictures of his son that would one day come to this earth. When Adam and Eve sinned, you know the first thing God did? He took away their fig-leaved garments. You ever thought about why he took away their fig-leaved garments? He took away that which they made with their own hands, that which they put together. And he said, you cannot hide your nakedness by your own doings and by your own works. Instead, he clothed them in skins. And in order to be clothed in skins, that meant an animal had to die. And blood had to be shed. God said, I want you to know in the very beginning that you cannot be saved by what you do. Somebody's got to die for you if your nakedness is ever going to be hid. In the very beginning, God began to give pictures. And when he got him out there in the wilderness, he gave them this one gigantic picture of Jesus Christ. For example, let me rush through these. One door to the tabernacle. That reminds us there's only one Savior, only one way to heaven. We're not all going down different roads ending up in the same place. There's only one road, and there's only one way. And if you don't go that way, you'll not make it to heaven. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the only way you'll get to heaven. You get through that door, and the very first thing you run upon was an old bloody brazen altar, smoldering, 
as animal sacrifices and were burning, lay, lay on the side, their throat being cut, blood being drained from their body, and they're laid up on that, and their bodies being burned. It reminds us in the very beginning that the only way you'll get to heaven is through Jesus Christ. And the reason you'll get to heaven is because you put your faith in his death on the cross and the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's the only way you'll ever get to God. You see, our ultimate goal is to get through that door and to get in the most holy place that we might be with God. But you'll only get there, first of all, by going in the one way you can go and by going by the way of the cross. You went by the brazen altar. Once you came there, that which signifies that which you put your faith in. Somebody died for you. You put your faith in what that innocent one did for you. Then the next thing you came to was the brazen labor. You're beginning the Christian life now. In the very beginning, it's the Christian life. The first thing you've got to understand is that there has got to be, even though you have been redeemed, there has got to be the dealing of sin in your life as a child of God, a daily cleansing of your life. There was the priest that went into the holy place every day. Only once a year did anybody go into the most holy place, but every day certain ones went in the holy place, but not before they cleansed themselves to go in there. There is daily cleansing. Christ is our sanctification. You walked on the inside, there was a table of showbread, symbolic that Christ is the bread of life. To the one side was a candlestick, symbolic that Christ is the light of the world. There was the altar of incense, symbolizing that Christ is our high priest interceding for us. And then in the very last room, the most holy place, was the ark that signified that the finished work of Jesus Christ, that it was all paid for. You see, it's all seen in Jesus Christ. Even the materials... God is symbolic of deity. I want you to understand something tonight about Jesus Christ. He is God. Amen. He is more than a God. He is more than a son of God. He's God. There's never been a moment that Jesus Christ did not exist. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He is deity. You'll find the silver is symbolic of redemption. The Christ being our Redeemer. Brass is symbolic of judgment, symbolic of the wrath that he endured, that I might have redemption. Blue is symbolic, is a heavenly color, signifying his heavenly origin. Purple is that which is symbolic of royalty. He is not only God, but he is king of kings. Scarlet, symbolizing his sacrifice and precious blood. Fine linen symbolic, that which is white of his purity and of his righteousness. Goat's hair dyed red, symbolic of his atonement. Ram skins, symbolic of his devotion to God. Badger skins, symbolic of his ability to protect his own. And Shittimore, symbolic, wood is always symbolic of humanity, that he was a perfect human. He was a God-man. When he came to this earth, he was just as much man as I'm man tonight. But he was just as much God as he was when he was in heaven. He was the God man. Everything about it testified of God's beloved son. But it not only testified and was symbolic of the Christ, but it was also symbolic of the Christian as well. How the believers to come to God. As I said a moment ago, we must go through that one door. Or we'll never get to God. And the altar speaks of the cross. We put our faith in the cross. The labor is symbolic of our daily cleansing. There is no entrance in the presence of God when you're dirty and defiled. 
If I regard iniquity in my heart, David said, the Lord will not hear me. Every day of our life, there must be cleansing. We've got to go by the labor. We're trying to get to God. In the very presence of God, we go by the labor. On the inside of the table, the table of showbread is symbolic of our fellowship with God. The candlestick is symbolic of our testimony in this world, the light that it gives. The altar of incense is symbolic of our prayer life as the altar, the sweet-smelling savor, extends up to God. Really, that, sac- uh, that incense as it burns would flow under that veil and over that veil into the holy place as a sweet-smelling Savior to the Lord, symbolic of our prayer. And then, of course, the most holy place. That's where God was. That's where you got in the very presence of God was in there. God was. You ever thought about what it must have been like for the high priest to go in there and God's in there? He didn't see him in a bodily form, the glory of God. There was a big old cloud by day. And it covered the whole camp and funneled its way down to that one little room, 15 by 15 by 15. And whenever that high priest went in there, it was just filled with the Shekinah glory of God, just like smoke-filled room. But when he walked in there, he couldn't look upon God in his true essence or he couldn't live. But when he walked in there in that glory, that smoke-filled room, he knew he was looking at God. During the daytime or at nighttime, there was fire that covered the whole camp and channeled its way down in there. And that was God. He walked in there. Symbolic that one of these days, our face shall be turned into sight. And we one day came through Jesus Christ and put our faith in the finished work of Jesus. We tried to live right, tried to live clean, have fellowship with God, send and pray and seek others. One of these days we'll call it quits and we'll look upon the face of the one who gave his life for us. Our faith shall become sight. Let's all stand to our feet. Get your prayer sheet. That gives you a little idea about the tabernacle. Next week... We'll begin to look at it item by item by item. And we'll have those little study sheets for you to follow each Wednesday night. It's a great, great study. Look at our prayer list tonight. Our missionary of the week is Bill and Sandy Murdoch. We've been praying for Bill. His mother's been real sick, and she passed away this week. Her funeral's tomorrow at 2 o'clock at J.D. Hill Funeral Home in Somerville, Georgia. And this is not only Bill Murdoch's mother, but it's also, you see the note that this is Frank Ross's sister. And so we want to be praying for them and talked to Bill the other night, assured him that we would be praying for him. So tonight, Bill and Cindy are our missionaries of the week. And uh, we're fortunate here at Temple. God has entrusted us. We treat our missionaries, those who belong to us, we look at them as our gifts from God. And we feel like God has put them into our care and entrusted us with them. And God has given us some wonderful families, and we thank God for them. And Bill and Cindy's one of them. And we want tonight as their church to hold the ropes and lift them up in prayer. Church of the Week is Tabernacle Baptist Church in High Point. Brother Todd Brock is the pastor. So I want to remember Brother Todd. Then those in the hospital, Miss Gilbert at Memorial Hospital. Quim Hudgens got to go home today. So you can scratch her name off, but continue to pray for her. And then Barbara Cole, this is Bobby's daughter. Is she still doing good off the ventilator, Bobby? It's great. That's, that's one. It's answer to prayer. Joanne Wyndham, uh, she's back at Park Ridge. Billy Jackson, and then Children's Nevada Creek, Jeffries, and Natal Intensive Care. And so I want to remember these. And also, uh, we want to pray for Miss O'Neill. As many of you know that her grandson passed away today. 
And this is a very sad story. Grandson, he's about 40, 41, 42, something like that, had a heart attack. This is the grandson whose wife died about a year ago. And uh, so he dropped dead with a heart attack. Four children that are left behind. But I want to remember Miss O'Neill. I assured her today that we'd be praying for her and so on to remember them. Also, there's some things I want you to pray about. We're coming up now, and we're going to be telling you more and more about this. It's what we're going to call three Super Sundays. There's three Sundays that are coming up over the next few weeks, which is going to become a very special Sunday, which we're going to put all of our attention and trying to get people here. Just day, those are days like we just try to get everybody we can. March the 25th is Revival Sunday. Brother Wilbur Hurt will be here. And I want us... That particular Sunday, we're going to get set goals for every Sunday school class. We're going to work to get everybody here we can. That's Revival Sunday. We'll do everything in our power to get our loved ones in and friends and neighbors and different ones that are lost. We'll try to get them here that day. Revival Sunday, March the 25th. Resurrection Sunday, that's Easter Sunday. Not a better opportunity in the year to get your family and friends to church than Easter Sunday. You'll get them to come on Easter when you can't get them to come any other time. And that day is a special day. We're going to pack this place out and pray for the salvation of many of them. And then Mother's Day is Relative Sunday. That's Mother's Day, and it's like we've done over the past several years. That is the day that we work fast and pray to get our families here and trust that God will save them. And there's been many family members saved on Mother's Day. The Wisness will be here, but the Bob Darty will be here. Just a very special day. Three Super Sundays. Now, what I want you to do now is start praying for your friends and start praying for your family, people you work with. Start telling them about it. Revival Sunday, March 25th. East Resurrection Sunday, Easter. Relative Sunday, Mother's Day. And I want you to start praying for them now and asking, God, will you help me to get my friends here one of those days? Help me to get my neighbors here. Revival Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, Relative Sunday. Will you pray that God help you to get them here that day? Will you start praying for them now and ask God to get them here so that we come that day and start praying for the convicting power of the Spirit of God to be on them. So when we come that Sunday, day, that Sunday, those three Sundays, God's power be surreal. Our loved ones, our friends, they get our conviction that they can't leave the place without getting saved. That's what we want, amen? Start praying for those things. Let's come and gather around the altar and let's meet God. I'm, I'm glad we meet God and have fellowship with God and we take these things to the Lord. And then on the other side, there's on the left-hand side, you see a lot of names there. I want to pray for them. Let's all come and just gather around the altar and let's remember these things. Our Father tonight, in Jesus' name, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the many, many ways in which you have demonstrated to us the kind of God you are, how you've illustrated to us that our salvation rests not in what we do, but in what Jesus Christ has done. Father, we thank you for the tabernacle. Bless our time in the next several weeks as we study it that we'll see the Lord Jesus in it. We'll learn as a Christian how to progress in our life as a believer. Father, I pray, Lord, that we'll meet you you live in us, and we want to fellowship with you and know you. So bless our studies together. Father, tonight we pray for Bill and Cindy. We ask you to be with them. I know his heart is broken. I know he rejoices that his mother's with the Lord. But I know at the same time there's an emptiness in his heart. And I pray you be with him for every member of the family to comfort their hearts and to strengthen them and to be with them. Thank you for the years of service they've given to you in Central America. Continue to bless their work. 
continue to use them, open the hearts of the people of Costa Rica to the gospel that they might be saved. But bless Brother Bill and bless Cindy. We pray tonight, Brother Todd, for his church in High Point Tabernacle. Thank you for what you're doing there. Thank you, Lord, for the tremendous potential that's in this church. I pray you bless them, Lord, and do wonderful things in their midst. Give Todd wisdom as he leads the church. Father, I pray the Spirit of God be with them and revival fires will burn among them. An area that desperately needs a move of God, I pray, dear God, use Tabernacle in High Point, North Carolina. And then, Lord, I pray tonight for Miss O'Neill and others that have lost loved ones that you be with them. For all the members of the family, be with them. Those in the hospital, touch them. Quim has gone home, be with her to continue to strengthen her. And then the many, many special requests that have been given by our family, church family, meet their needs, move in their lives, touch them. So, Father, we thank you tonight. We can pray about these things. Now, Father, on the Lord's day, visit us. May the glory of God come down. May the power of God be real. May we see the Lord Jesus in a special way on the Lord's day as we see the presence of God is in our midst. So meet every need now, and we'll thank you and praise you. Lord, as we come, as we look in the future days, we ask you, Lord, to bless Revival Sunday. May this place be full, and may many come to know the Lord Jesus. Pray for Resurrection Sunday. May a living Christ walk among us on that day. And Mother's Day, Relative Sunday, may we see many of our family come to the Lord Jesus. Some of our folks, Lord, faithfully pray for their children and loved ones. On Mother's Day, may we see many of them get right with God and get saved. We believe you are able, and so we pray for these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.